0: So i will title this chapter tonight under the title, The Lord is Near. And we're going to look in different ways how the Lord is near to the people mentioned in this chapter. Just to recap and to help us remember where we're at, the prophecy of Zechariah begins in the year 520 BC. So the children of Israel have spent about 70 years in Babylon. They have been brought back from Babylon, at least about 50,000 of them have come back. They've been there for maybe about 20 years in the promised land. The temple, it was begun, but it wasn't finished. And so under the prophecies of Haggai, who comes first and then Zechariah, the people are encouraged to build the temple. And Zechariah, the first six chapters have eight visions about God's purposes in the world and purposes for his people. And then in chapters 7 to 8, there's the, the question of fasting being raised. Do we continue to fast for the destruction of the Jerusalem in the past? And basically, there are four sermons in response to that over those two chapters. And then, chapter 9 is the beginning of another section. Chapters 9 to 11 are about God's dealing with the nations, and then chapters 12 to 14 about God's dealings with Israel. And we don't know exactly when these chapters were written, when exactly, was it just after? The others were not told about that and it doesn't particularly matter. So here we come to this section, chapters 9 to 11, about God's dealing with the nations. But as we look at it, you'll see there's much more to that than just God's dealing with the nations. First thing we see in verses 1-8 is the eye of the Lord. One of the Undoubted responses of the people to God, people of God to what the, the nations did to them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so forth. They probably were thinking, is God indifferent? Does God not care about the evil deeds of these other nations? God has dealt with our sin. He's dealt with us much more severely than he's dealt with these other nations, and we're supposed to be his people. And in many ways, this is what this section is dealing with how. God is not indifferent to the sin of the other nations. Now, you notice at the beginning how it begins. It begins with the phrase, the oracle of the word of the Lord. That word oracle, it's also found in chapter 12, verse 1. It's also found in the next book, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi at the beginning. It's a word which basically means a burden. And so this is speaking about how God is really burdened by what he's going to say here. This is not something that God's indifferent about, but something that God is very serious about. But it says there, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. The word of the Lord is against these nations. And this is a a dreadful position for any nation to be in. For God's word is, to be against it. Because think of the power of the Word of God. God spoke, and the world came into existence. So, just by His Word, everything was created. And therefore, just by His Word, He can doom nations. Yes, He might use means to carry that out, but soon as His Word is against the nation, it is doomed. It's as good as destroyed if the Lord says that this is going to happen. And you know, this is a challenge for us because we live in a nation which God's word is against because we are a nation that has gone against the word of God. We are a nation which has gone against the law of God. I was listening to a sermon by someone else in this and he was saying that they were speaking to somebody quite high up in government. And they were saying about the plans that they had on a certain subject. I'm not even sure what the subject was. And the person said, this person in government, but what you're doing is against the word of God. And they laughed and said, we don't care. (laughs) And you know, that's such a dangerous position to be in. But that's the position of our government. It doesn't care that God's word is against it. And we need to realize that We have a role to intercede for our nation. We have a role to seek the Lord's forgiveness for our nation. That God's judgment will not come against our nation because we are a nation which has gone against the word of the Lord. Therefore, the word of God is against us as a nation. So we have to be careful here because there can be an old patriotism thinking we are God's chosen people. Our nation is God's chosen people. We're not. We're a nation in rebellion against the Lord, and we need to intercede for our nation. We see here the Lord has an eye on these nations in verse 1, and particularly on how they relate to his people. It says therefore, the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. The Lord misses nothing, and that's encouraging for God's people. He sees what other nations do in the light of his people. He is working purposes out for the good of his people. Now, there are three main nations, particularly that the Lord's eye is upon here, and these nations are highlighted by the cities which are mentioned. And these cities that are mentioned here, uh, there's about, what is there, about nine or or ten altogether cities that are mentioned here. Uh, There's an order to them here. And You think of how Israel was, apart from when it was attacked by the Egyptians, generally all forces that came to invade Israel came in from the north. And the picture here is like a great army coming against these nations from the north. But the army is not another nation. Only the army is the Lord, although he may use a nation. Now, let's look at these. Verses 1 and 2, we have Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath which are mentioned. And they belong to Syria, which is to the northeast of Jerusalem. We think of the city of Damascus, which still exists today, believed by some to be the oldest city in the world. And so that's the first place that's mentioned. And then to the northwest of Jerusalem and Israel was Phoenicia, where Tyre and Sidon were. Today, that's the country of Lebanon. Now, it's interesting just the way it speaks about these uh, cities. These are like city-states. Tyre it highlights there how it has built itself a rampart in verse 3, has heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the, the mud of the streets. Tar was a very rich place. Uh, tar was at the, on the coast. Tar itself was actually on an island and just off the coast. And tar traded with the whole world. There is historical evidence that uh, tar traded with southern Britain, Uh, southern parts of Britain. There are historical evidence for that. Tar was well defended. It was so rich, it was well defended. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar tried to take tar and he failed. He, He laid siege upon it for 13 years and still didn't take it. The Assyrians before him, Tried for five years, and still they couldn't do it. But here it is spoken about how it will face judgment. Judgment will come upon it. And then we have, in verses 5 to 7, the cities of Ascalon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod, And they are part of Philistia, the Philistines. Today, this is the Gaza Strip to the southwest of Jerusalem. Now the judgment spoken against these cities referred here is points forward probably to the coming of Alexander the Great. About 200 years after this prophecy, Alexander the Great, the Greek uh, the king, came in and destroyed these city states. Uh, Tar, which had failed to be destroyed by these other great empires, was destroyed at that point. But there's something interesting here in regards to Philistia. I think this is very interesting when I mean, we think of what's happening at the moment in the Gaza Strip. And I think there's something to speak into that situation. There is hope in the midst of the judgment upon the Philistines. It speaks, you know, the Philistines are slightly different, in the way it's mentioned. The other nations is really just speaks to them being destroyed. It speaks about the Philistines having a fear come upon them. And then it says, look at verse 6, A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I'll cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now, sin. this is a a country, these are cities are going to experience God's judgment, but there's going to be a remnant. Now, it's interesting what it says there. It says the blood from its mouth and its abominations between its teeth. The Lord says he's taken us away. We can think of it this way of, you think of the, the food laws that there were in Israel. They weren't allowed to take blood and so forth. And so what it's saying is that which is unclean about these people is going to be removed its abominations which offend God's people, its abominations which offend God shall be removed. And it shall become like a clan in Judah. And it says Ekron, one of his cities, shall be like the Jebusites. If you know your history, if you go back to the time of King David, in Israel at that time, the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. And then David conquered Jerusalem. He Jerusalem was quite a difficult place to get to. It was way up on the mountains. It was surrounded by mountains. It was well defended. But David took it to be his capital city. But the Jebusites were allowed to be part of the people of God. These Canaanite people were allowed to remain as part of the people of God. They were assimilated into the nation of Israel. And so what it's saying here is these people of Ekron are going to be brought in to the people of Israel. Now, This is an interesting, you think of going forward to the New Testament and after the time of Jesus, after the day of Pentecost and the spread of the gospel. One of the people who was greatly used in that was Philip, Philip who was famous for going to the Ethiopian eunuch. But at the end of Acts 8, we read of Philip being at Asotus. Asotus was the Greek name for Ashtod. Philip was evangelizing in these Philistine territories. He was sharing the gospel among these people. Now, I think this is something very relevant because what it's teaching the people of Israel is that they were not just about preserving themselves in regards to these other nations. Yes, at times they had to fight, they had to defend themselves, but they were to be more than that. They were to be a witness to the nations around them of the one true God. They were to encourage the other nations to seek the Lord. We, we saw that actually partly in the previous chapter. That they were to be a people who others would see being blessed by God and call us, cause others to seek the Lord. Now you think today... And nations do have a right to defend themselves, and Israel certainly has a right to defend itself. But when you speak to Israeli people, they're very much, if you can use the phrase "shin Féin, ourselves alone, that's very much their mindset. It's them against the world. But what they've lost sight of, they were to be a light to the nations. Sadly, because they themselves have been blinded to God They're failing to be what they're called to be, to be a light to the nations. Now, I think that the relevance for us, and we have to be very careful about this. We live in a world that is growing increasingly hostile to Christian values and to biblical principles. And in many ways, we are against the world in these things. But we need to realize that we're not to have a mentality of just that we're fighting against the world, that we're against the world world we are to have a mentality we're there to seek to win the world for the lord you think of people maybe who are hostile to christianity who you maybe live among or work among or study among and you know it's it's very easy just that i want nothing to do with them Uh, they're obnoxious to me the way they treat me the way they talk about christianity and you can see them as the enemy but we need to realize we're not just to see them as the enemy, we're to see them as people who need the grace of God and people who can receive the grace of God. So here's a wonderful thing, speaking about, yes, how God, through the Greeks, is going to judge these nations, but God had a plan to bring these people to be part of his people in his grace and mercy. So there we have the eye of the Lord upon these nations for this purpose and then we have the coming of the king in verses 9 to 13 and verse 9 i'm sure as i read it whether you've ever read Zechariah 9 verse 9 before you would have recognized it it is quoted in Matthew 21 it's quoted in John 12 in regards to Jesus coming to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday Jesus coming on a donkey highlights how He comes not with an earthly splendor. His glory is from elsewhere. Notice the way it puts it there about him coming on a donkey. Uh, Humble, at the end of verse 9, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You can almost think there's two or three animals there. But what it is emphasizing is this is really a donkey. Uh, It's uh, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, which is a, a male donkey, the foal of a donkey. In other words, it's not a half-breed, it's not a mule, it's not the halfway between a, a donkey and a pony or a donkey and a horse or something. This is a full donkey. Now, the reason why that's important is mules and ponies and horses were used as weapons of war. Donkeys were not. So this is a total donkey. This is speaks of someone coming with great humility, someone coming who doesn't need earthly glory, doesn't need earthly splendor, because his glory comes from his righteousness. It comes from who he is. His glory is from a different world. I think that's an interesting thing. When he has a glory from a a different world, he doesn't have to, in this world, put on pretense. He doesn't have to put on show. And that's a real lesson for us as Christians. If Our greatest glory has to be our relationship with Christ, our knowledge of Christ, our experience of God through Christ. When we have that, what anything else we can get in this world, in many ways, is pretty irrelevant. What compares to knowing the living God? I think I've maybe shared a story before, a cousin of of Charles, who once, uh, he worked in, uh, he belonged to a church in London where there were a lot of people who worked in the government. And uh, there's one young lady, and she worked in Downing Street, and she was always uh, name-dropping about George Osborne and David Cameron, and she worked quite close to them, and uh, you couldn't have a conversation. She was talking about it. And... She was in a conversation one day, and there was one of the fellows there who, I think actually it was something like a third cousin of the Queen or something. He was in the conversation, and he had been listening to this, and he was fed up with this, and he says, do you know something? This morning, I talked to God. In other words, so what? You know David Cameron. So what? You do these messages for George Osborne. So what? What compares to knowing God? And you know, when you think of Jesus, the way he comes with great humility, you think of that, riding a donkey, unless it's the kids on the beach somewhere, eh, riding a donkey and your feet almost touching the ground, it's, it's quite a humiliating thing. You might see some films, maybe a Western, where someone's horses have been killed or something and they end up riding a mule or a donkey or something. It's quite embarrassing to be riding a donkey like that. Jesus didn't care at all. He didn't need the praise of man. He didn't need the praise of this world. Because of his relationship with the Father, he had everything he needed. The story of W.P. Nicholson. When he was converted, he was felt compelled by God to go on the Saturday in Bangor and to witness with the Salvation Army. He thought, no, Lord, not a Saturday morning, please. That's market day, all my family and neighbors will be in Bangor on on the Saturday morning. And he went in, though, and he felt compelled by this. And there he was just saved, and he was such a foul-mouthed, wild man. He was just saved, and he was willing to stand and to sing with the Salvation Army. And Nicholson said this, when the Lord saved me, He saved me from public opinion. So often we want to drop in what we're doing. We want to put a bit of show of what we're doing. We do things to be seen. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the followers of Jesus. You think and look at verses 9, what it says about Jesus. It says about how he comes to bring salvation He comes, we see, to bring peace. He speaks there in verse 10 about cutting off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And this peace comes, if you follow it through at the end of verse 10, as his reign comes over the whole earth. This is actually a quote from Psalm 72 and verse 10. He shall rule from sea to sea. That's from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the river like the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. It says, Christ reigns and rules in people's lives. Peace comes to people. But Notice what it says there why this will happen. It says in verse 11 how, As for you also, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now remember, the number of times the people of God, the number of times the people of Jerusalem had turned away from the Lord, they had worshipped idols, they had gone after false gods, they failed him again and again. Why is the Lord even bothering with them now? Why is he caring about them? These people who have let him down again and again and again. Why is he bothering with them? Here's the answer. God is free to do as he pleases. God is free to judge people as he pleases. But God in the covenants he made with Abraham, with Moses, with David, God who is free to do as he pleases, Tied himself down to be faithful to this people. To be committed to this people. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 11 with the covenant. Because of the blood of my covenant. The covenant of the Lord was always instigated in blood. When Abraham, when the Lord made the covenant, remember there was a sacrifice and the fire of the Lord went through it and basically cut in half. You think of how at the exodus all the sacrifices that were instituted that. God's covenant commitment is shown in blood. Think again what Jesus said in the upper room when he lifted the cup of wine. This is a new covenant in my blood. And God would commit himself, God would commit himself all the way to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross because he has promised to do this. The blood of Jesus will ultimately fulfill this covenant. The blood of Jesus will bring forgiveness, bring salvation, bring peace to his people. That is how far the Lord is committed to his people. Think of some of the result of this. Look at the end of verse 11. I will set your prisoners free from the the waterless pit. Speaking a wee bit of allusion to the members Joseph put down in the pit by his brothers, a picture of how he has brought his people back from Babylon. And then in verse 12, he encourages others who hadn't returned, the majority hadn't come back from Babylon, said, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you, I'll restore to you double. Come back to me, come back to the city of Jerusalem, come back to the place where the king will come riding on the donkey. Come to the king, and you will see blessing and grace beyond your wildest dreams. It's interesting then in verse 13, you know, when you look at prophecies, you wonder, how does this next bit fit? He's talked about verse 10, about doing away with the the chariots and the war horses. Now in verse 13, he says, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim a I will stir up your sons of Zion against your sons of Greece. Now, what's he talking about here? Some have thought this might refer to the days of the Maccabees. After Alexander the Great would come, he would left Jerusalem intact. But then there would come a very evil Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he did terrible things and he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And he was fought against by a, a group led by a man called Jacob Maccabeus. They were called the Maccabeans. There's books in the Apocrypha, first and second Maccabees. These who fought against it. Some think it might refer to that. I don't think so. It just doesn't fit the context here. The context here is about the people returning. We know from the the book of Joel that the Greeks had taken some of the Jews as slaves. And there in Joel 3 and verse 6, it speaks about that and speaks of how these slaves would be delivered. And I think this is what has been spoken about here. The context is people being brought back, God's people being restored. The people who are in Greece are going to be restored. God's people, wherever they are, are going to be brought back. And it's just something so encouraging. You know, Jesus has died for a chosen people. And every single person for whom Jesus has died, they're going to be brought into the camp. They're going to be brought to Christ and salvation. They're going to become part of the true church. They're all going to be restored. They're all going to be brought in. It says in Isaiah 53 about Jesus, how you'll see the travail of his soul, the suffering of his soul, and he will be satisfied. Jesus died knowing that everyone for whom he died, all those chosen for salvation, all those sheep, will be brought in. We're to pray we to share the gospel and we can have this guarantee that god's people will be brought in by his wonderful grace the king comes people will be drawn to so we've seen the coming king and then finally we see the appearing of the lord in verses 14 to 17 and i think this final section it speaks about the coming again of christ at the end of the world we see verse of all in verse 14 he comes indeed to judge the nations. But notice why he judges the nations, verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slingstones. He is doing this, he is judging the nations for the good of his people, for the security of his people. And the Lord does this in verse 16 because His people are precious to him. That's a lovely verse. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. That's where that lovely hymn, When He Cometh, When He Cometh to take up his jewels, that's where that lovely hymn comes from. Uh, The jewels of the Lord's crown. Now, can you imagine that? you're a child of God, you're one of the jewels in his crown. You are to shine so that he will be glorified and honored and praised. There's that lovely passage in Ephesians 3 where it speaks about the the principalities and powers. It speaks about the angels and how to them will be revealed the, the manifold wisdom of God through the church. In other words, the angels as they were there and as Jesus lived on the as Jesus suffered, as Jesus was tortured at his trial, as Jesus was taken the cross, they were probably thinking, Lord, why? Why? What's the point of this? Where's the sense of this? And then the Lord will present his church to the angels and say, now do you see the point? Now do you see the wisdom of God? Look at my people. Look at my redeemed people. They are my jewels. The jewels in my crown. Now think about that. If we are the jewels in his crown, our calling is to shine for him. Our calling is to be different from this world. Our calling is to be pure. Our calling is to be passionate for Christ, passionate for his worship, passionate for obedience passionate for his church we encourage each other so together we shine as beautiful jewels and why will the lord do this is it because we deserve this of course not we don't deserve this look at verse 17 for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty I remember as a relative young believer getting an old book. I worked in a, a Christian bookshop one time. and had a good second-hand department. I got all the bargains, and I got this really old book on the Song of Solomon. It was really interesting reading and saying about the Song of Solomon, how it was revered by the Jews as the, the holiest part of the Bible. And just think of the words of the song of Solomon, how indeed uh, the bride just adores and sings praises of her husband. How he is the fairest of the fair, the most outstanding among 10,000. How he is so beautiful. Here is a picture of how the beauty of the Lord. I wonder in the proper way, is a romance in your relationship with God? Have you a a passion? Do you have a, a love for God? Our Christianity isn't to be mechanical. It isn't to be cold. It's to be where we're passionate for God. We're thrilled by God. We're excited by God, excited by who he is like the bride in the Song of Solomon, This God, it says, will make the young men flourish by grain and the young women by the new wine. In other words, God is going to give his people what they need to flourish in their relationship with him. And One of the wonderful things here, I think there's a wee picture, isn't there? Of the Lord's Supper at the very end of this. The grain from which bread was made. The wine. How the grain and the wine, the bread and the wine will make his people flourish, will make his people excited and thrilled in their relationship with the Lord. That should be our desire on Sunday. And that's what we should pray for and prepare ourselves for. That as we meet around the table, we're fed so that our relationship with Christ will grow, will be deepened, will flourish. That should be our prayer. That should be our passion. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We we come to this chapter, Lord, and initially it can look like a chapter just about judgment, but Father, we're We come in this chapter and again and again we just see grace upon grace upon grace. Grace to the Philistines and bringing them to be part of your people. Grace in the the king coming and riding on a donkey. Grace in how your people are viewed as your jewels in your crown and how you make them flourish. Lord, what a wonderful thought that is. And Lord, we just realize that you are a beautiful God, as it says here. You're a God of such goodness. Oh, Lord, may it be our desire just to know you more and more. And Lord, to seek to just to go deeper in a relationship with you. And as we abide in you, O oh God, through Jesus, we will then live in a way that will show this world that we're part of you. For such grace we pray, O God, in Jesus' name, amen.